0: Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello and welcome to the Mind Body and Soil podcast, where we explore the threads of what it is to be human, woven into this earth, and laying the groundwork for what is to come. I am your host, Kate Kavanaugh, and it is an honor to be here with you each and every week, and bringing you these interviews. For those of you that are intro skippers, I am just going to tell you that I think that this is an important introduction to lay the frame of why this interview. But first, I actually want to talk about some of what happens behind the scenes as I gather information for this podcast. I think it is easy, perhaps, from a listener's perspective to feel like this is a one-woman show. But in truth, I am very dependent on and very lucky and happy to be in conversation with a small network of people that help open up doors of new ideas and wells of curiosity and conversations that really form the basis for some of the topics that we explore here. And I am so grateful to have that network. I will say, too, that one of the most incredible things that I found about the podcast since beginning it is that each guest changes the trajectory of future episodes in ways big and small, that they introduce concepts and recommend books that forever alter My interests and explorations, and send the podcast in places that I never would have expected at the outset when we really began with exploring agriculture. It is really an honor that I get to have these conversations. And the book that we're going to explore today, which is Dan Egan's The Devil's Element Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance, was recommended to me by former guest and friend James Connolly in the spring of this year. I found this book absolutely compelling and hypnotizing to the point that I... Picked it up at about 7 p.m. at night, and I stayed up until about 11 reading it and woke up first thing in the morning to finish it, uh, devouring it like it were a Stephen King novel. This book actually formed the basis of a lot of conversations that James and I have had this year. And it is just such a gift to be able to explore ideas and to have your world expanded in conversation. And so I want to thank James for introducing me to this and and many other books. And to say that that this podcast well, produced by me and hosted by me is anything but a one-woman show. And I will link in the show notes to the interview that James did with Dan Egan and also the interview that James and I had together on this podcast. And yeah, just just a little thank you and a little acknowledgement that there is an ecosystem of idea sharing that happens underneath this podcast as for this book you might be asking yourself why you want to tune in to an hour and a half long podcast about a single element and what it might have to do with anything in your life and i think that the truth is that the single element has a little bit to do with everything And, you know, in the book, there's this great quote that this is the gravest natural resource shortage you've never heard of. And indeed, it is that but this compelling book is filled with the awe of human ingenuity and the horror of human ingenuity, too. Um, It is filled with an idea that James and I have really discussed which is this idea that humans are able to take things that are essential to life and to turn them into weapons of violence and you might have read about white phosphorus in in the news as of late and Dan touches a little bit on this in this book um this book is also filled with the origin stories for things that we find as commonplace as the soap opera or the children's rhyme shelley sells seashells by the seashore uh it is a book that i think dan does a good job of describing in this interview it is not just about phosphorus but it is a story arc that is common between a lot of different materials and humans where there is this, this deep history of our exploitation of both earth's resources and people throughout time and space and this hubris and relationship that we've formed with our environment and i think that you'll see that the paradox of phosphorus where we are both running out and have so much that it is causing quite literal downstream effects in our waterways that are forever altering our environments is is rather profound and i think that you'll also find I think in some ways the origins of the idea of importing fertility which is something that I think we now find throughout our world in a variety of different places and in terms of a variety of different elements, but also the way that we outsource the farming of certain things and import fertility for others and this global network of food and agriculture and materials that we have built over the last Over the last 300 years or so, I just think that this book is incredibly compelling and that it also forms the basis for some other conversations that I hope that we are able to have in coming episodes. And I honestly can't wait for you to listen to Dan and to read the book. And please, if you do pick up the book, drop me a little DM on Instagram or shoot me an email and let me know how it impacted you because it just was probably one of my favorite books that I have read all year. And I've read, a, I've read a solid amount of books this year. So I want to dive into our interview without further ado and let you hear for yourself just how crucial this story of phosphorus really is and to bring you into this ecosystem of sharing ideas and opening up wells of curiosity. So without further ado, here is Dan Egan with his book The Devil's Element: Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. Okay, I know I know I said this via email, but I do want to reiterate I I don't think there was a bigger page-turner of my year than your book. I started it in the evening in spring. It was probably April at 7 o'clock, and I stayed up until 10.30 or 11 reading it, which is very late for me, and woke up at at 5 a.m. to finish it and was just captivated.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, it was, it was a challenge because it is about phosphorus.
0: Yes, but you make and I think that's what's so beautiful about it. You take this element and you turn it into a story that is incredibly compelling. And to that effect, I actually wondered if we might start and sort of lay the groundwork for everyone on why phosphorus, because I think it might feel a little out of left field. And I wondered in that if you might touch on, you know, might touch on NPK fertilizers, phosphorus. And also, and and perhaps this is a good place to really begin, the idea of, and I, I pulled this quote from the book, in the last 200 years, humans cracked the circle of life held together by phosphorus and replaced it with a line running straight from mines to farms to waters that are, as a consequence, increasingly fouled by toxic algae. And so I thought you might just like Give us a little bit of an overview of phosphorus, MPK, and just how essential this element is to life.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I first encountered the element in a journalistic way probably 10 years ago when I was working for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and doing stories on toxic algae across the Great Lakes and in the inland lakes across the Midwest as well. And um, not long after that, I uh, started working on a a book about the Great Lakes. And I spent a a lot of time on that theory, and they were suffering, and still are immensely, from an overdose of of phosphorus. And so um, while I was working on that book, I thought, this is way more interesting than a book about the Great Lakes. And I just kind of filed it in the back of my mind to come back to, and uh, that's what I did. But yeah, phosphorus is just... You know, it's it's essential to life on Earth. It's in every living cell on the planet and maybe beyond. Um, mm-hmm. There's no substitute for it, but it's also a finite resource. So, yeah, Earth managed just fine without humans with the phosphorus balance in which things like grass and trees and anything would grow, live, grow, die, and return to the soil and return to the soil, all those uh
0: Fertilizer. Mm. I lost your, be? oh, there, there's your audio. I lost your audio for a second, but oh, keep going.
1: But- yeah. So, you know, it, phosphorus along with nitrogen and potassium are the three, you know, real, really critical uh, fertilizer properties in modern fertilizer. <clears throat> and we're not in danger of running out of nitrogen anytime soon most of the air is nitrogen and there's still vast deposits of potassium but phosphorus is a different story it's like i said essential for every living thing on the planet but we're also running out of the the rock deposits that really harbor most of it uh, those are the deposits that really fuel the modern agriculture industry that sustains some 9 billion people there's no way there's no way we would have that many people living on this planet if we hadn't figured out how to really exploit these relatively scarce deposits of phosphorus rocks and turn them into food on our table.
0: Yeah. And I really want to capture for people that phosphorus is part of this natural life cycle that is constantly occurring within nature. And we've really broken that inside of modern agriculture. And that when we're talking about NPK fertilizers, like you said, you have nitrogen, which is incredibly rich in the atmosphere. And we're able to liberate through the Haber-Bosch process, which you, you touch on really wonderfully in the book. And potassium is rich, but phosphorus is is both rare in terms of there are these these deposits um, in very few places that we are depleting in order to gain this this element, and it's also the rate limiting factor for the production of fertilizer. Is that is that correct? Do you want to talk a little bit about Liebig's law in there?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, Liebig's law is is basically. Restricts a crop is all the fertilizer in the soil, all the nutrients in the soil. It's it's the least available one, and phosphorus has been that one, was that one for a long, long time. So, you know, if you add more phosphorus in whatever form you can find it to a crop, that crop is going to do better. That's the way it was working 200 years ago. We've since so saturated our you know croplands with phosphorus that it would be hard to argue it's the limiting element at the moment. There's really not much limiting what we're producing on this industrial scale, but uh, that that doesn't mean there aren't you know consequences uh, that go way beyond agriculture for for how we're using it. I mean it's it's a paradox. We 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 need life needs this stuff. There's only so much of this stuff, and we're blowing through it really really fast, and that's going to cause you know some hard decisions in the coming decades. And this isn't pie in the sky stuff. This like the U S it's primary deposits are in Florida and it's been estimated that in three or four decades, those are going to be played out and there's some smaller deposits in North Carolina and Utah and Idaho, but it's not in the too far distant future that we're going to be be dependent on another nation or country for our uh, food security, which is a lot dicier than, Energy security, I would argue, yes. because there are, there are substitutes and workarounds to oil, but there's no substitute for phosphorus.
0: Yeah, there was a there was a quote that you had on the book um, from an editorial in Foreign Policy magazine, which called this this is the gravest natural resource shortage you've never heard of. And I think that you you make some comparisons to oil throughout the book and and with much graver consequences in terms of our ability to to feed ourselves yes I, w- I want to touch on something that you you said. You brought in to play this idea of phosphorus being a bit of a paradox. And I think that this paradox really lies at the heart of the book and is is particularly fascinating. I think you both come full circle on a couple of different things. And there are also several different paradoxes when you kind of zoom out. At one point, you said Call it the phosphorus paradox. At the same time as we are drawing down our increasingly precious caches of mineral phosphorus rock, we are overdosing our waters with it. Some have predicted existing phosphorus reserves will play out by the end of the century, a time frame scoffed at by many who are knowledgeable about the issue, including those in the fertilizer business. But whatever the number of years, it is undeniable that we have cracked the circle of life and turned it into a straight line. And that line has an end, whether it's 100 years or far years. Years. And you you come from this background with the Great Lakes and looking at phosphorus maybe beginning through the lens of water. And so I wondered if you just might talk about that paradox a little bit.
1: Yeah, you mentioned earlier Liebig's law of the minimum, and and that is really critical for phosphorus in terms of the damage it can do to freshwater systems. So take Lake Erie. Um Lake Erie is primed. In any given year to just you know have an explosion of algae the only thing that was really keeping it in check was the lack of phosphorus and then in the last hundred years since we've started mining these phosphorus rock deposits and turning them into fertilizer and broadcasting them across the landscape um we we've we've started to overdose our waters with phosphorus and they're pro like i said the lake erie in particular we're just talking about that right now it is just primed to have algae blooms the only thing holding it back is phosphorus and now nothing's holding phosphorus back because uh like i said we we broadcast it across the landscape much of it gets taken up by the crops the soybeans the wheat the corn that for which it's intended but too much of it and a lot of it makes its way off the croplands before it can be taken up by some kind of a plant, and it washes into water where it doesn't grow soy or corn or weed. It grows toxic algae. And this is a profound problem. It's not just a aesthetic nuisance. It's the algae that, that phosphorus has been growing in Lake Erie and in lakes across the country and the world in recent decades is increasingly toxic. And, you know, that means it's it's trouble, not just for animals, but for humans as well. It's a liver toxin. It's It's being investigated as toxin um there was a case here a kid went swimming in a golf course pond on a hot july night some years back and that pond had that green telltale green scum it almost looks like green paint Mm. on it and that's that was and it often is today microcystis which is a form of blue-green algae which is toxic stuff we're talking about he went swimming and he died yeah. 17 years old and he was perfectly healthy. I talked to the pediatrician who, who uh, handled the case. I, I can't say he treated him because I think he was deceased by the time he arrived, but I talked to him three or four weeks ago and he was still disturbed by that. And so am I.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think so we all should be. And you look at some of the cases of swimming no longer being impossible. Um, I think there was a, a A stretch of beach in Louisiana um, and throughout the Great Lakes region um, and some of the health effects both in both immediately in terms of lungs and and really feeling that and and some of the possible though not proven long-term effects in terms of something like ALS.
1: Yeah yes yeah Um, there's been a study up in, in New England um a guy out of Dartmouth has has mapped ALS cases and and lakes that are you know suffering these algae blooms, and you know they don't have a causation, but there is a correlation between proximity to these lakes and increased risk for this kind of neurological scourge. And um, you don't have to go swimming in that water. You don't have to drink that water. You don't have to touch that water. The the toxins in the algae aerosolize. And that that's been documented. You can be exposed to this stuff without even really getting close to a shoreline or river bay.
0: It's scary stuff. Um, you touched on something I want I want to kind of come back around to, which is these toxic algae blooms are the cause of all of this phosphorus runoff mostly from farming applications. The product the,
1: the product, not the cause. Yeah. Of, yeah of right. The yes. Yeah. The product.
0: Yes. And and you talk about in the book, you know, we waste about 80% of the phosphate um, that we use specifically for food production, whether that's in over-application in soils that are already saturated, or if you look at the, the 50% of food waste that we incur, at least here in the United States, we're losing a lot of of this at every stage, and that's part of that paradox. Here we don't have enough in these deposits to apply as fertilizer, but we have this absolute deluge of it coming off into our waterways from the, the food system.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I think I need to back up here a little bit to to, to just explain this a little bit. So Great. so in the early, early, early days of Earth, the the initial source of phosphorus in the living world were igneous rocks that just slowly leached the stuff and it would be picked up by a plant, whether that plant was on land or it was in the ocean or on the lake, <clears throat> and and that plant would live and use it and, and then that plant would die and decay in and, and, and water, particularly in the ocean. You know, you'd have like millions and millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of years of plant life dying, decaying, and descending upon the ocean floor and then accreting back up, creating these sedimentary rock deposits that are just absolutely rich with the mineral phosphorus. Igneous rocks have some, but it, it's relatively, most of them are, you know, a small percentage. But this stuff is like, you know, super potent, these sedimentary rocks. And, and, they're not found in very many places. And so, like I mentioned earlier, our main deposits are in Florida. And so that's the sum total of, you know biological processes and geological processes going on for, you know, it's safe to say billions of years. and And, and so now we tap the the phosphorus in these sedimentary rocks and we use it to you know grow stuff that we want and sometimes stuff that we don't want but what happens then is it, it like it never goes away but it disperses so when you have these toxic algae blooms in Lake Erie yes over the course of millions of years well Lake Erie will probably just fill up become a bog and then the landscape but the process takes a long long time to reconcentrate all that phosphorus into a form suitable for mining and converting to fertilizer. so we're, it's not like we're running out of it, but we're blowing through the all the low-hanging fruits and you know those low-hanging fruits are the the mines that are scattered around it I actually um, for, go ahead
0: no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry we are we're on a bit of a delay.
1: It, it, it's just really hard for humans to grasp this. I mean, it, it's hard for us to look out over, you know, a year, let alone a decade, not to mention centuries and eons. So, we're, we're not doing a anything by using the phosphorus that we have as kind of a limitless. <laughs> you, if you're worried about not having, you know, a, a, a bumper season, and if it washes away, don't worry about it. Well, you got to worry about that for two reasons. One, it's going to poison the water with toxic algae, And two, generations beyond us are going to need that stuff. So we, we've got to, like, get back to, we're never going to get back to this perfect circle of life where I like to describe it in, in real simple terms when you think of a, a cow on an acre, which is basically what a cow needs to, to survive, it eats the grass, it poops, that poop grows grass, it eats the grass, it poops, and on and on and on and on. The circle of life, this is now a line, and we need to bend that line back into a circle. And how do we do that? I think it's just being much more um, effective at, at at managing agriculture runoff and also tapping existing technologies that can repackage a lot of this w- well, I mean, we'll go right to manure. Manure is rich with phosphorus, and and that too gets spread on the landscape and washed into waterways, and then grows toxic algae. That that manure can be can be stripped of its essential nutrient properties, nitrogen and phosphorus, and turned into you know a pelletized product, pure as anything that's going to come from a you know a mine. And we're not there yet, but we need to get there because a you know we're going to need to keep growing food and be. we're going to need to keep drinking water. And, yeah. and this stuff, you know, poison water, Lake Erie in 2014 lost its drinking water supply for a number of days, 500,000 people couldn't drink what was coming out of their taps. And you couldn't solve that problem by boiling it like it were a bacterial issue because this isn't. And so boiling the water would only concentrate the toxins. So you had to have the national guard coming in with, you know, tanker trucks full of drinking water and and pallets of baby formula because you can't go long without drinking. And here's like a city of a half a million on the banks on the shore of the world's largest freshwater system by surface area. And the residents couldn't couldn't drink a drop. And that's not futuristic crazy stuff. That happened. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and will happen, I'm sure will happen again in the future.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's only getting worse with uh, just the stuff is, you know, every every time more is spread on a field than is needed, that's just setting up trouble for the coming decades. And then with climate change and the increase in carbon in the atmosphere and the increased temperatures, those are only going to foster these unwanted toxic algae blooms as well. So we've we've got to figure this out.
0: I want to get into some solutions. But first, I wonder if we might rewind to talk a little bit about the history of mining phosphorus, because it is so uh, uh, it's, it's sort of jaw dropping. And I'm struggling to find words because as you go through this in the book, the history of the British bringing back and the bodies of the dead to to quite literally make their bread and pillaging Egyptian tombs to to utilize this, I think sort of underscores the point you're making about some of the the mining that is happening and and the using of these of this element.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a twisted and and difficult to tease out history, The, the the history of phosphorus you know it doesn't phosphorus I, I use phosphate and phosphorus interchangeably throughout the book and so to just make the quick distinction phosphorus pure elemental phosphorus doesn't exist on its own in the natural world it's always bound up with oxygen atoms to create molecule phosphate um the, the pure form of phosphorus was unknown to humankind until an alchemist in the 1600s who was searching for the mythical um, philosopher's stone, which was the substance that the alchemists at the time believed could transmute base metals like lead into silver and gold. The thought at the time was that metals are in a constant state of evolution and if we could only figure out what was prompting that metamorphosis. We could speed it along and we could get rich. And so this one alchemist in Hamburg, Germany, thought that it could be derived from the human body or from the human waste stream more specifically. So he started tinkering with urine on an industrial scale for the time and through a bunch of hocus pocus and a lot of heat and a lot of time, <laughs> by that I means like more than a couple of weeks of, of hard, hard cooking, vats and vats of urine. He uh, conjured this waxy uh, glow, in the dark substance that kind of smelled like garlic and that was that was pure phosphorus that was elemental phosphorus and it didn't turn anything into gold you know it turned out you know urine's not going to turn anything maybe a snowbank (laughs) (laughs) but but, uh yeah it it was not the product that we hoped for and at the time so this is the late 1600s it was it was called the devil's element because it was the 13th element that had been discovered or isolated and recognized and then it was also highly flammable if these little nuggets that glowed in the dark if they warmed to just you know about 86 fahrenheit they would they would combust and burst into you know flames and so for decades this stuff was just a curiosity they would you know it would be like the centerpiece of magic shows and stuff. Mm. People were just kind of lawed by it, but humans humans soon found ways to exploit it. And it wasn't long before it was being used in match tips. And then eventually we can talk about this in a little bit, incendiary bombs, firebombs. Yeah. The, the soldiers in Vietnam war called it Willie Pete, white, white phosphorus. It's still being used today. And in many cases, it's arguably being used illegally in war because it's been banned for anything but, to light up the night sky or to make a smoke screen. It, so anyway,
0: and it's, hor- it's horrifying. Its effects are horrifying.
1: They, oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it looks like a, a, a phosphorus bomb looks a lot like a firework when you just see those globules drooping down from the, from the sky. Only the difference is, is these things don't just snuff out when they hit the ground, they keep burning. And if it hits a human being, it'll just burn to the bone through the bone and beyond. It's, yeah. it's dastardly horrifying stuff. So, so that that is how we first encountered elements P phosphorus, you know, through this through this alchemist's work, and then just through securing over the next 150 years or so, and then on a parallel track, the English in particular, because it was we say now we're in the early early 1800s, like 1800, and so it's the, a little ice age. And the Industrial Revolution is just about to pick up steam, <laughs> literally. And uh, <laughs> you know, England is, the UK is an island nation with limited you know, fields and climates to grow crops. So they were always a threat of famine. And so they were great tinkerers with, with fertilizing materials. And so in the 1700s and early 1800s, they would put anything they could think of on a crop to make things grow and you know they they put blood they'd put cloth they'd put animal waste they'd put human waste they'd, they'd try anything and if it worked they'd go get more of it and it turned out and they didn't really realize it at the time but bone shavings were just remarkably uh good at growing things like ter- turnips so this sent the british on the hunt for more bones and that took them to the battlefields of Europe. Like I write in the book, the battlefield of Waterloo. If you were to go there today, there's like maybe three skeletons or something in the visitor center, um, pretty gruesomely displayed, but there, there's no mass grave, even though some 40,000 people fell in 10 hours along with a bunch of horses. Wow. Um, But there, there's no remains on that battlefield today because the British went over, the battle was in 1815 and the British went over in the early 1820s and looted the battlefield for not just its enemy's bones but for its own children's bones, brought them back and they built special mills to grind the, these bones up into powder to spray on crops or to spread on crops to get things to grow. So at the time they didn't know what made bones so potent but it was phosphorus because phosphorus is in every living cell and it, it really crews in in the human skeleton and so it was just magic they didn't know quite why but they learned why soon thereafter and this is this was interesting to research and write about and it has a lot to do with the jump from alchemy to to chemistry so Mm -hmm. like early early on um you know the english are using manure and they're like this is great as a fertilizer and every not just the english everybody across the globe was using manure but as as science developed and excavations began and the fossil diggers started digging they were finding these there skelet- these fossil remains of creatures sea creatures on on the coast of england that were so intact they actually had fossilized poop in their in their bellies and Justice von Liebig, the guy we were talking about earlier, has ruled the law of the minimum, the, the fact that a crop doesn't need everything. It needs the one thing that is in least available to make, to uncap its growth potential. Mm-hmm. He was walking along the coast with a geologist at the time and he saw, they called them, this is irrelevant, but they called them Bezos stones for reasons I can't remember. But they were fossilized nuggets of dung. And he thought, wow, if if, you know, actual warm <laughs> especially this Fresh. is is so productive maybe maybe this stuff would be too and so he started doing experiments and that's where they made the jump they're like oh it's the faucet because he was isolating the elements in 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 uh, modern mm-hmm. modern manure and in and in these stone these stony clumps and he found that they it was phosphorus. So that's where chemistry took over, and we started to realize we don't need bones necessarily. We don't need cow poop necessarily. Uh, we need what's in it, and that's phosphorus. And so that really refined the hunt for new fertilizing materials. And that took us from the battlefields of Europe to the South or Southern hemisphere, the West Coast of South America where uh, these islands exist off the co- coast of Peru that are just mountains of just dried, ancient bird poop. And they did an analysis at the time, and the, we talk about nitrogen, potassium, potassium, and, and phosphorus, NPK. You see that, that label on bags of fertilizer. They did an analysis at the time, and the NPK ratio in a lot of these deposits is just remarkably similar to what we sell today as a commercial product. So those islands became ground zero for the fertilizer trade. And it was thought at the time, in the time being 1830s, 1840s, that that these, when I them, they were just like more than 100 feet high coming straight out of the ocean. Nothing but bird poop, dried, desiccated, chalky bird poop. And there were so many of these deposits that it was said at the time that we would never run out. And then we ran out for you know, 40 years. Yeah. And then we're getting more and more refined in our hunt. And that's what put us on you know, the path toward these certain sedimentary rock deposits. It's not all sedimentary rocks. It's just certain ones. And they still don't understand how it got so concentrated. It has something to do, I'm sure, with ocean currents and just the churn and the refining and stripping away of everything else. So just phosphorus rich rock remained. But that's where we ended up at the end of the 1800s. And that's where we've been since. And so we've been mining these deposits around the world. And that's what sustains humanity as we know it today. So it's really an interesting history of like a, the AV element and just the curiosity that it was. And then, you know, the, the weapon that it became. And on a parallel track is phosphate, the molecule uh, that is so essential to crop growth. And so that is really human's relationship with this element it's it's just you know source of great bounty and also of great tragedy or terror and yeah. peril it's it's really an interesting fascinating thing to think about
0: i thought about that as as being yet another paradoxical element of the book is that here is something that is so essential to life and yet has wrought so much violence and terror whether you're talking about incendiary bombs or you're talking about just the exploitation that has happened in the course of what I think and was struck by in this book is sort of the beginning of outsourcing fertility. I think we we do a lot of outsourcing of of fertility yeah. um in today's global agricultural scheme and and this really struck me as perhaps that first time where you're importing um, fertility from you know from South America from from these islands in Peru all the way to Britain in order to grow food for for people and so it is yeah and it wasn't
1: it wasn't just England I mean it was the North Americans got on it real fast in the eighteen hundreds as did the rest of uh, you know most of you but yeah it, I mean it, it's really it's it's a great example of globalization's early mm-hmm. days and, and, mm-hmm. and the, the benefits and the consequences. And we see the benefits right away, and it often takes us too long to see the consequences.
0: Yes, and I, I, I actually think that your book does a good job of sort of showing the rise of phosphorus in some of these consequences throughout time um, and just sort of the hubris at the beginning and these practices that are... I, jaw-dropping that left me speechless. Of of bringing back these bodies to grind bones to make bread, um, and also, I mean, just the. Uh how it evolves into this environmental toxin even covering things i never expected like the origin of the term soap opera um uh or the the origins of the shelly cell seashells by the seashore um and, and which made it i think made it all the more compelling but i think also made it a a cautionary tale, because I think that as humans, we are prone to taking elements of life and turning them into either literal weapons or or deep exploitation of Earth's resources and, and the humans that mine them.
1: Yeah, I mean, the human story really is wrapped around this phosphorus element. I, when I was doing the research for this, I just kept thinking, why haven't I heard about this or seen these dots connected and it's just they're not intuitively there for people to see but once you kind of pull back and, and look at it it's like ah oh i think i understand how we are really when you talk about sustainability we are really on an unsustainable path with this stuff mm-hmm. i mean it's it's like i said been just a boom for humanity on on one level and it's it's just been, and, you know, a, a really problematic thing on another deeper level. And there's room. I mean, I'm, nobody would ever say that we can't go forward without mined phosphorus. But we've got to realize that that mine that mind is going to have a closing date, just like the islands did, the, the, the Guano Islands off of Peru or the battlefields of Europe. Um, we've got to just start thinking about how to restitch this circle of life.
0: Yeah. So how do we begin to rethink stitching the circle back together? What would it mean to solder the circle?
1: Well, you were, you were talking earlier about uh, laundry detergent and <laughs> your soap opera. <laughs> soap opera. So, so just stepping down another path real quickly here. Please. So we, we first realized the potential danger of overloading the environment with phosphorus in the 40s, 1940s and 1950s, and at the time it wasn't because of uh, commercial fertilizer, laundry detergent of all things. So prior to World War II, there really wasn't a thing called laundry detergent. There, and you know, there were wash basins, and there were people, typically women, who would have to spend their, you know, at least a day a week just washing and scrubbing clothes. And then after World War II, when we could turn our industrial might toward products of convenience rather than you know bombers and tanks and Mm. bombs and submarines um we could build washing machines refrigerators and cars and the problem with the washing machines was that traditional soap really wasn't very effective in in these newfangled machines so the chemists of the time of the era set to work on deriving a synthetic soap and that's what detergent is and it's you know i write in the book that you know soap is is really a pretty primitive compared to what goes into a modern box of detergent, and I won't go into all the chemistry of it, but suffice it to say that it was historically lots of phosphorus and the, lots of phosphates that it just had a, did a great job of uh, getting your brights brighter and your whites whiter. And everybody at the time in the 1950s and early 60s thought that this was just you know an unmitigated miracle the consequences of it started showing up in Lake Erie at first and Lake Erie figures prominently in this whole story because it's the warmest and shallowest of the great lakes, which makes it the most productive. It's this—it's the smallest great lake, but it has more fish than all the other lakes mm. combined. And that's just because there was traditionally, historically, naturally, uh, lots of fertilizers in, in the, in the water and in the surrounding croplands and the water would get warm and, <clears throat> It was shallow, so it just became a very productive lake in terms of producing plankton, which sustained fish, which Hmm. made humans happy. But in the 1960s, it started, you know, producing these huge algae blooms that were so big and vast that they would, you know, basically squeeze out any other form of life. Uh, What would happen was, you know, they they would grow, they would die, and they'd decay And that decay would burn up all the oxygen in the water, so almost nothing could survive. So this is in the 1950s and 60s, and people are saying, what are we putting in the water that's causing this? And the detergent industry didn't really want to acknowledge its role, potential role in it. So they said, it's not us. It's some other chemical excrements coming from the industries lining the shores of Lake Erie. And Canadians weren't buying it and you know half of lake Erie belongs to them so they decided to get to the bottom of the problem by going up into far northwestern ontario and setting aside these lakes and literally dosing them with the potential pollutants that were causing this this algae bloom and in one famous experiment they took a lake that was shaped like a peanut and they they put a like a giant plastic curtain across it from mm. the surface to the bottom so they basically cut the lake in half one side got dosed with phosphorus and the other didn't. And two weeks later, the side that got phosphorus was green as a golf course. And they went up in a helicopter they took a picture of it. And that really did a lot to bring us the Clean Water Act of 1972. And the Clean Water Act of 72 made it very difficult for people to just wantonly dump into the water as they had for decades or centuries, literally. Yeah. Um, they You had to basically receive a permit. To put a pollutant, even any kind of pollutant, in any water body, and that did miracles. It, it, you know, the, the, all of a sudden, the phosphates were largely pulled from detergents and and other. It wasn't just a story of phosphor; it was phosphorus. It was all manner of pollutants were were largely controlled through the Clean Water Act. But the Clean Water Act didn't address all forms of pollution. It focused on what they say, and it's oh, I hate this as a writer when you have to write non-point source pollution. But they're basically that's what the Clean Water Act went after. Mm. And in simpler terms, that's going after the industries with smokestacks and pipes. Mm-hmm. Because the argument was we can we can plug those pipes or smokestacks or we can at least scrub what's coming out of them and you know we don't we it's concentrated, we know where it is, we know what it is, we know what can remove it, we can fix our waters. And they did to an extent, but they they left their own non point source pollution, which is basically agriculture. Yeah. The idea at the time was that the agriculture pollution was so diffuse and and relatively minor compared to the industrial stuff, the stuff coming out of tubes, that we'll just give them a pass. What year is this? 50 50 years ago. So it's 51 years ago, 72. And farming is agriculture has changed dramatically since that time. Dramatically, so what, this is
0: prior to Earl Butts's "Get Big or Get Out."
1: Yeah, yeah, but it, that's how we got that's how we got there. Um, we just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so now, you know, back in the 1970s, 50 head a hundred head of cattle was a really big operation. And now, in my state of Wisconsin, we have operations that are eight or ten thousand head of cattle. And they make a lot of milk, but they also make a lot of manure. Yeah. And when you go to the lagoons and the tanks and you see the volume of this stuff, it's hard to argue that that is a non-point source pollution. That is the definition of a point source pollution, but regulatorily, mm-hmm. politically, legally, we haven't caught up to that idea. So agriculture's left largely unregulated in terms of you know the impact it has on waters. And that's where we need to start thinking about how to go forward with this. And I don't want to disparage the farming industry. I mean, it's the, most of those people are not getting rich. They're working their butts off and doing yeah. something about as noble as you can that's producing food. But it's not working. It's not working for them, and it's not working for yes. us increasingly because, you know, it, they shouldn't be mutual exclusive, mutually exclusive enterprises, growing food and drinking water. But they're on a collision course right now, oh. and manure is a big piece of the problem, because we spread it on croplands, not necessarily because they, they need the fertilizer, but because we need to get rid of it, because it is like milk, it's produced every day. Yes. And so, <clears throat> the rule of thumb at the moment is, if a farmer has to move his his manure more than ten miles, he's losing a lot of money. So it yeah. ends up it ends up staying in in the watersheds which it's created. And that creates big problems for the water at the bottom of that slope of, of, that, of that system. And so what do we do about it? Well, one of the first principles of pollution control is concentrating it, getting your hands on it. That's why we went after the point source polluters initially. Uh, now the farmers have unwittingly, you know, taken that first step. Instead of having, you know, a hundred, uh hundred, uh, cow dairies, we've okay. got like one 10,000 cow dairies. those numbers add up, <laughs> I'm not sure. It's still I, early in the morning. Yet. But,
0: <laughs> big, but, um, big operations.
1: Yeah, big big operations. And and but it's all that manure is in one place. So here yes. in Wisconsin, like we're we're exploring or tinkering with and moving toward a future where like there was a there was a, a case in the central part of the state like a year ago. I was reading about this, this farmer installed a anaerobic digester and he was making more money selling his methane than he was selling his milk, which is crazy. And that's just going after the methane. Wow. In this, if, you, if you try to look at the, these lagoons of manure through the eyes of the British in the early 1800s, they would not see that as, you know, a lagoon of yuck. <laughs> they would think of it as yum because of, you know, yes. the fertilizing properties of it. So we're already stripping out the methane we have the the technology to do that and it's it's not we have the technology too to to strip out the phosphorus you could pelletize it which would make it much easier to transport and then you can move it out of the watershed and you can take it to the far-flung places you know in the uh, across the globe where where it's desperately needed but we're not there and it's because you know regulatorily we're not mandating it and farmers aren't going to just you know do this They'll run themselves out of business, you know? Oh,
0: yeah. They're on 2.4% margins as is.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they can't afford to do this. So you could make the argument that they can't afford, we can't afford not to create a better system. And that's going to have to happen through legislation, really. And the clean water rubbed a lot of people the wrong way at that time. And today we can't imagine what life would be like without it. And I think we're headed that way as far as managing manure. So that's one thing, and that's a big thing when you think about the circle of life. You know, it's it's not one cow, one acre, <laughs> but but it is. Coming out the back as efficiently and sustainably as possible. Another thing to look at is what we're growing and why, and that's where ethanol comes into the picture. You know, forty percent of the corn we're growing in the U.S. today ends up in our gas tanks, and nobody's really happy with this. The, you know, the ethanol is exceptionally corrosive on engines. It's environmentally been shown to not be a winner at all because yeah. it takes land to grow, it takes mm-hmm. energy, and it takes a lot of fertilizer. And and we don't need to be exploiting all those resources for. A fuel that really isn't doing the good that we hoped it would so ethanol should be looked at again as you know do we really want the federal government mandating that 10 of the fuel in our cars is through? there aren't any like magic bullets and i don't mean for this book to be a prescription for anything it's just to connect dots so people can see a clearer picture of what's going on and then make rational steps forward as we've, you know, throughout our history, but we're just kind of stuck in this moment here. And, you know, we're wondering what's going to jolt us out of it. And, you know, I talked about the Clean Water Act. It was, it wasn't just the lakes turning green. It was the rivers burning, you know, the Cuyahoga River flowing into Lake Erie. That wasn't a case of phosphorus. That was just industries dumping whatever they wanted onto the river to the point where it was no longer water it was you know flammable material and and so that was in 1969 and you know it wasn't a coincidence that two years three years later we had the clean water act it was an event that just caused people to think what are we doing we've got to do better and we're there now again with agriculture um but we're not taking the action that our you know forebears did
0: And I think that by connecting the dots, you're kind of spinning a tale both in in how these things happen, how how humanity's. Oh, I, I don't even have a good word for it. Hubris. How how our greed, how our um, exploitation unfolds, and and what might be done about it. I don't want to miss. You said something that I just can't miss. And you said that the the eating of food and drinking of water shouldn't be mutually exclusive. And right now they're on a collision course. And I just I have to highlight that because I don't think I've ever heard somebody couch those two things as being on a collision course in in the way that we grow food and its effects on our drinking water and so i just i have to highlight that
1: yeah you know um i'm in wisconsin and uh last uh, august i did uh, an event at the university of wisconsin in madison which is on the shore of lake mendota which is just a fantastic lake um and it's also just ravaged by this toxic algae because it's in the heart of dairy. dairy. And so my idea was there's a thing in Wisconsin uh, with the university system, it's called the Wisconsin idea. And it's just common sense. It's kind of like the law of the minimum, but the Wisconsin idea born in the early, early 1900s was we're not just, you know, building these universities and creating all these labs for the sake of knowledge is own sake we, we want this to be practically applied we want the ideas that we create here to be brought to the people so they mm-hmm. can make their lives better whether you know that's through uh, agriculture policies or environmental stewardship or you know just technology that makes life easier the, the it's just it's just an, an underlying an underlying system so I thought I would take the Wisconsin idea and make it manifest on the banks of on the shore of Lake Mendota in the summer because it's ravaged by toxic algae. It's in the heart of Dairyland, And it's also touches the campus with the, I think it's the oldest limnology department in the country, if not the world. Limnology is the study of freshwater sciences that that department is literally like the building is cantilevered out over the lake. It is on the lake in a literal sense. We also have some of the best soil scientists in the world. And so I, I got a limnologist, and a soil science guy together and a comedian because I wanted to make this accessible to uh, to some of the college students. Oh, damn. Wow. Is, okay. <laughs> the guy's name is Charlie Behrens, and he's just kind of like a professional Wisconsin guy. He goes hard on the accent and our cultural quirks. And he, he's a he's a learned fellow, too, and he actually uh, was a journalist for a while and covered water issues so it wasn't hard to convince him to come to this and we uh, this event and so we we got on the the shore of Lake Mendota and talked about how do we go forward so we can have you know cheese on our pizza and beer in our cups uh, because beer is mm-hmm. largely water and there's a lot of beer made there and consumed mm-hmm. there. and you know it, I thought it was a very productive conversation but one thing that stuck with me was it was a hot August day it was August 31st it had to be like 85 degrees. And it was at the student union, which is right on the lake, right next to the Department of Technology, and uh, is a swimming beach for the students. Or it was historically. But the signs, the signs. It's not today. It comes in a tunnel. When it's posted, no swimming. And the day we having this presentation, there had to be 200 kids on the water. They weren't in the water. They were on a dock, like a seasonal dock. And I pointed back to them and I'm like, you know, the shame here is that these guys shouldn't be on the dock. They should be in the water. And, you know, that's not asking too much. And two days later they were in the water because there were so many of them on the dock, the dock collapsed. Nobody, nobody died or was seriously hurt, but they got dumped. And I just thought, wow, that is a moment that we need to just kind of think, how did we get here? And you know, how do we get out of here? Yeah. And, So it's really interesting too with this university community is, you know, they call it the shifting baseline when it comes to uh, environmental issues where people just get, it's a fancy way of saying people just get used to it. So Mm -hmm. if you show up at the university of Wisconsin in 2023 and there's no swimming signs, you're not going to expect that that beach is swimmiful. So that beach never, you you don't know that you, you have no concept of it. And at the same, at the same time, because there's such a churn of students, you get some good years and then you get an expectation that the water's clean and they're going to demand when it goes bad, that something yeah. be done. And this is like talking about this on a small scale, but it can be you know, scaled oh, up. You know. Absolutely.
0: I, and I, shifting baseline. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that term before. And I think that's a really important idea that when we, when the water is never swimmable, we don't think about what it would mean to return it to a place where yes. it is swimmable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. we just get numb to it. And so that is really the point of this book is to un people, to let them think about, you know, what we have, what we had, what we've lost and how we can get what we need back. And it's, there's all sorts of reasons to do it, you know, it's, but it's not just aesthetic or it's not just philosophical. It's, you know, there's, there's a chapter in the book, I believe it's in the book. I know I wrote about it. I wrote about it for the New York times this summer. I can't remember how much of how much of what I wrote about was also in the book, but Florida is a really interesting case because they have horrible toxic algae outbreaks on Lake Okeechobee in the middle of the state. And then the afraid the dike containing the lake is going to collapse and kill thousands of people as it has already, you know, throughout history in the 1920s, the dike containing the lake collapsed twice and killed thousands of people drowned them. Um, so now instead of risking the collapse of the dike, they send the contaminated water down canals to the Atlantic coast near Stewart, Florida, and to the Gulf Coast near Fort Myers, Florida. And I went there, I went there for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I went there for I think my Great Lakes book. I wrote a book called Death and Life of the Great Lakes uh in 2017. And I went there for this this most recent book and then also for the Times. So I've been down there a lot. But what really fascinates me is the people who really care what's going on in the center of the state aren't your traditional environmentalists. They're just landowners and parents who are worried about property values and their kids' health. Yeah. And so it, it's it's really, you know, where where we're all headed. It, this isn't, like I said, an aesthetic or a philosophical issue. It's Mm-mm. a sustainability issue. It's a human health issue. Mm-hmm. Um And it's not an impossible thing to solve, but we've got to acknowledge that it's a problem and then start taking steps to remedy it.
0: What do you think? Do you think the acknowledgement, I'm just curious, based on what you just said, like, do you think the acknowledgement happens when we get to that place where the health of our children is being affected, when our landscape is being affected? Like, what, what does it take? Because in many ways, I think that this story provides a framework for acknowledgement.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that that was the purpose of the book. And I kept the book simple and short. It wasn't going to be as short as it is, but COVID, I was going to go to Guam where they've done some research on on some of the proteins that's in this algae of this is in the fifties and sixties in Guam. They they were consuming these proteins that are in the toxic algae through a different form. I won't get into the whole rigmarole, but they had, you know, severe outbreaks of als-like diseases so i was going to go to guam i was going to go to new zealand mm-hmm. which is um you know it turns its whole countryside green with with phosphorus fertilizer the great green hills are juiced with with phosphorus anyway i was going to go to a number of places more than i did because of covid um <laughs> uh, you don't want to write 500 pages about it, you no, know, because nobody wants to read 500 pages about it. So it's like 240 pages, and I tried to make it as accessible as possible because I'm not ai don't have a science background. If somebody started talking to me about phosphorus, um, or if somebody said, "Hey, let's go hear a talk about phosphorus," I wouldn't want to go, you know, <laughs> let alone read a book about it. So in some ways, I was, I guess. Suited, well suited to write this book because I wasn't wowed by the topic, but I became so once I started teasing out the strings, connecting the dots, and seeing the picture that was emerging. And to me, it's just, it's just a critical story of our of our time. I mean, I, I just I want more people to read it. And because when we talk about this, it really I spent so much time crafting this in a way that there's an arc and the you know things flow and connect. Because that's one of the reasons we haven't solved this problem, because the the picture is hard to see. And this Mm -hmm. book is my best effort at at painting that picture.
0: You paint an incredible picture and I'll say this, the book is very accessible. I read it in the same manner that I read a Stephen King novel late at night, just uh, uh, curious about what happens next, you know, jaw dropping and so many dots connected. And so I think it is accessible and that's coming, I read a lot of different science writing, um, uh, some more dense, some more popular and it is, is a story more than anything. and I think that you paint a really compelling picture and I think that you have some brushstrokes in there that suggest some ideas for how we might find a way forward. and I I I know, what it is to talk about it, because I I think this is my favorite book of the year. And I've told everybody I know to read it. And it's always interesting to open this conversation about why would we talk about phosphorus? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a weird person to have at a party anyway, but I am the person at the party that's going to bring up phosphorus and to see how people react and to find those to find those little tidbits that draw people in. And I think, you know, in your connecting the dots in a big way of we need to look at this and we need to make this line a circle again. There are mm-hmm. also these entry points that are incredibly compelling, whether it's why we call it a soap opera or these sort of horror-filled histories. Um, that yeah,
1: well, you know, talking about. A circle there's a circle in the book too that you might or might not recognize and it's it starts in hamburg and it ends in hamburg yeah. so germany is where where hennig brandt the alchemist first discovered phosphorus 1669 i believe in 1943 hamburg was burned to the ground by the allies similar to dresden in some ways worse uh with firebombs many of which were phosphorus-based bombs yeah so that's 1943 and today in the 2020s um people are suffering the consequences of that bombing still and that's because along the the banks of the elbe river and the shore of the nearby baltic sea people go looking for amber and it's a thing it's like a it's it's like copper sna- copper river salmon from from alaska it's uh it's baltic amber and so amber is is all over the place up there because that used to be a, a conifer forest you know millions and millions of years ago and the sap from that turned into amber and people want that amber and so they go looking for it and when they find it they save it or, or they keep it for themselves or they sell it but they don't find tons of it so they just put it in their pocket and you know move on well These bombs that burned Hamburg to the ground that were loaded with phosphorus, I was saying earlier that they look a lot like fireworks, that these globules, when they hit, they burn through whatever they hit. Well, if they hit water, they solidify into these little nuggets that look just like amber. So you've got people scouring the coast, and they're becoming increasingly aware, because this is increasingly happening. They pick up what they think is amber, they put it in their pocket, and then it warms above 86 degrees, as I mentioned earlier, which is the trigger point for phosphorus to combust and boom you know their leg basically explodes and so i talked to a guy who this happened to i went over there and um he suffered burns on 40 percent of his body he was walking along the baltic coast he didn't think it was a piece of amber he thought it was a fossilized oyster shell or something it's curious enough to bring home to his wife and then he put it in his pocket and he Next thing you know, his, his bottom half is on fire. He actually, when it first started, he stuck his hand in his pocket and he's thinking, look, I, I don't smoke. I don't have a lighter. Why did my leg just go on fire? And he puts his hand in his pocket and he pulls it out and his five fingers are all on fire with like this goo. There was like he said each was like a birthday candle. And so he instinctively ran into the Baltic Sea to put himself out. And then when he came back out, he would flare back up into flames again. So and this is this is December or January in northern Germany in water. And you know, he's they were gonna bring in a helicopter, but they they thought he might bring down the helicopter, so they had to wait oh, wow. for an ambulance to arrive and they packed him in wet towels, took him to a hospital, and uh, you know, I talked to him several years after it happened, and he was he, he had survived and uh, you know, was leading a, a nice enough life, but was just horrified by that. So that's Hamburg, Hamburg's you know second brush with phosphorus and then I end the book in Hamburg because Germany is getting out ahead of even the rest of the e, EU in demanding that phosphorus discharges from wastewater treatment plants be brought back down to as close to zero as is scientifically technologically possible and they're doing this for the two reasons we were talking about one they want to protect their waterways two they want to preserve phosphorus deposit. They don't have any of their own phosphorus deposits, but they want to become more self-sufficient with with phosphorus fertilizer, which will prolong, you know, the phosphorus deposits on okay. Earth for everybody. And so, they've built this state-of-the-art wastewater treatment plant that produces phosphorus at a grade that you know is as pure as anything coming out of a mine. And they're confident that this is a technology that's going to spread. <laughs> Excuse me, can cut that. Um, so yeah, they're confident that this is a technology that's going to spread throughout Europe and and North America. So yeah, you know there is the the, the story of the element really just kind of circles around Hamburg over the last four hundred years, mm-hmm. which is really coincidental, but made it kind of fun for writing purposes
0: it did it really it really made it it made it a circle in so many ways you see this echo of of the circle of life and the sort of of circular story arc as well as these sort of paradoxes that are are nested within it Mm -hmm. and i think that that it it really made the story come to life um i i know you're in your car and that you're probably getting a little bit chilly um (laughs) So we can, we can work to wrap this up. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful. I do have a, do have a question? I I wondered if you had seen about the deposit discovered in Norway and. and Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a good question. So I I didn't read a lot about it, but from what I understand, you know, there's in, in mining terminology there's deposits and there's reserves and deposits are, Mm. we know it's in there. We don't know to what extent Mm. or what it'll cost to get it, you know, to to market um and then there's reserves and those have been defined and are deemed to be economically harvestable and so i don't think they've defined this norwegian deposit as as a a reserve i also think it's igneous rock so i i don't know how heavily concentrated this stuff is and the stories that i read they really focused on you know oh, oh this is good news for um you know, like electro electric vehicles, because you know, it's it's yep. there's a component of the whole battery system that relies on phosphorus in some fashion that I don't know about or understand. So, you know, we're always gonna find deposits. It's just yes. how easy are they gonna be harvestable and you know, what what's the pain gonna be um in the meantime? So like I was saying, you know, it goes into Lake Erie and it becomes diffuse. But yeah, at some point, we'll probably be mining the bottom of lake beds and somehow, you know, squeezing out the relatively uh, low-grade phosphorus deposits that are in there. So yeah, I did see the story about how there's some massive deposit that had been identified, but how accessible that is, I don't know. And I think if it were, I'd be hearing a lot more about it you know sometimes i worked newspapers for 25 years and sometimes little stories become big stories uh without anybody doing a thorough reporting Mm -hmm. so i'm not criticizing the story i'm not saying that at all but i don't think it's problem solved by any stretch of the imagination
0: I don't either, and I—I I was actually a little struck by it because I think that it is out of human ingenuity that it is out of what they're working on in Hamburg, um, and some of the human ingenuity that you cover within the course of the book. I mean, just over over 400 years, the human ingenuity alone just to find phosphorus in the first place. Um, you know. Th- yeah. That, that- yeah, and
1: you know, maybe the worst thing that could happen would be, yeah, that's a—it's a remarkably concentrated, easily accept, accessible deposit. It's like, well, then we're not going to have to figure out how to conserve and be sustainable. We'll just keep throwing it on our fields and poisoning our waters. So, and we you need know, to it's figure it out. Yeah, it's not all bad, the pressure that we're feeling. I mean, it's Great. just do you want a hard landing or a soft landing? And we still have time for plenty of time for a soft landing here. But yeah, I went to a conference in 2022, like a year ago in November in North Carolina, and it was a, a phosphorus concert, conference. And the organizer said he has one goal, and that is to get the president of the United States to just utter the word phosphorus. <laughs> <You'll feel laughs> the, the situation had been has been elevated to the point where, you know, something is now potentially possible. But, you know, yeah. the president did talk about phosphorus, but it was Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s saying that we need a national phosphorus policy because of... You know, the, the uh, fertility problems we were having, you know, with the Great Dust Bowl and mm-hmm. whatnot. It was recognized at the time, but then the pressure was off once we, you know, started exploiting more of the Florida deposits. It's like, well, we've got plenty of it. We don't need to worry about it. Well, 100 years later, 90 some years later, we need to worry about
0: it. Yes. And again, I think that echoes that idea of that shifting baseline, right, mm-hmm. that we often come back to. I mean, so much of what was talked about during Dust Bowl era, we we should be coming back to. Um, yeah. And and so I think that's really important. Um,
1: Dan, yeah, I. One, one other ahead. thing I'll just throw that yeah, in. Yeah, please. Do with this, but uh, <clears throat> uh, talking about interesting side stories and within the book. Uh, So there was a guy in 1909, he was an undersecretary of the agriculture, Department of Agriculture, and he was a University of Wisconsin professor. And he went over to Korea and Japan and China to write a book. And the book was titled Farmers of 40 Centuries. And what he tried to answer in that book was the question, how do these guys keep fields productive for 4,000 years and beyond? When here we are six, seven decades into farming on the great plains and we're running into horrible fertility issues. And so he found out and what he saw was just, you know, a a culture of remarkable thrift. And, you know, Mm. it was, it was how they, they processed waste, human waste included and recognized it as a fertilizer source. If it's properly treated, it is a marvelous source of fertilizer. It's gross in our minds, But, you know, Grocer is starving to death. And so there's this one case or scene in the book. I think it was in Korea. or No, it was in Japan. And he goes to this farm and he sees this this kid who's following a cow. And the cow is yoked to a wheel. And the cow is walking and turning the wheel, which is powering a pump, which is irrigating the the rice crops. And and the, the boy is following behind it. And with a scoop, a bamboo scoop, and he's catching the plops of manure and putting them into some kind of a bin. And and the guy, his name was uh, F.H. King, uh, wrote about it and said at first he was really upset that he saw a kid had been given such a literally crappy job. Mm -hmm. And then he thought about it for a second. And this is the one quote in the book where you may, if you want to cut in here, I think it's on page 172. It's like the one quote I know in the book. Do you have the book there, or no, or can you search it?
0: I I can. I have a digital copy.
1: What so, um, if the phrase "it it could be no other way" might might get you there, or no other way. Hmm. Could it be? I see
0: no other way. No. That's yeah. Not it.
1: Um, how about bamboo?
0: Yeah, let me flip through after this. Um, I have the bamboo pole. And what's the okay, there came a flash. There came a yeah. flash of resentment. Yeah. Okay. There came a flash of resentment that such a task was set for the lad, for we were only beginning to realize what lengths the practice of economy may go. But there was nothing irksome suggested in the boy's face, King reported. He performed the duty as a matter of course, and as we thought... It through. There was no reason why it should be otherwise. In fact, the only right course was being taken. Conditions would have been worse if the collection had not been made. It made possible more rice. Character of substantial quality was building in the lad, which meant thrift in the growing man and continued life for a nation.
1: Yeah, that rings true today. You know, we've just got to scale it up. Interestingly, F.H. King, I mentioned he was a professor at the university of wisconsin i went over to talk to a soil scientist while i was reporting for this book and i ended up in an office where uh fh king's desk was just sitting in the corner it's pretty cool
0: amazing i i want to actually say one thing about that because i thought about this throughout the book and i think we do a disservice in the linguistics of waste right that we view waste as something to be disposed of to be hidden to be rid of when really waste excrement human cattle whatever it is is part of this an essential part of this cycle of life and is really anything but
1: waste yeah yeah you know i i don't have a problem you know, I've heard people say, Oh, you write too much about poop and pee. <laughs> it's like, Boy, this is this that's life, it's essential. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's literally life. And, yeah. uh, you know, we can't divorce ourselves from it, uh, we oh. do so at our own peril. And, you know, there was a lot of interesting reporting that I did just as far as the history of the sewer system in London and, and in Paris, and how that really was not to be too cute, but a watershed moment when all of a sudden. You know, they were doing land spreading of of human waste in Europe, and, and then the cities got too big to haul it out to the countryside, and they decided to just flush it away. And so once we built those sewers, it was a great idea for 19th century thinking, but it's not a great idea for the 21st century because we just flushed away essential nutrients at great, you know, harm to our waterways as well. So just putting it in a pipe and turning your back and plugging your nose to it doesn't make the problem go away. It arguably just exacerbates it.
0: Yes, absolutely. There's a book on my, uh, in my list of to read. Um, She just wrote, her name is Rose something. She just wrote 90% of everything about the shipping industry, but she she's written about the sewers and human waste. And I'm, I'm very keen to, to pick that up because I think it is again, anything but waste.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they're tinkering with, you know, the human waste stream in Brattleboro. Uh, that was Vermont, go yeah.
0: You you talked about that because Brattleboro is nearby. And I was actually thinking about reaching out to them and going down there because I was very interested in the, they're using urine to grow yeah. various vegetables. Um, is, is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it would be interesting to go see that.
0: Yeah, I was I I was on the second reading. I was planning on on reaching out and going over there and and experiencing that because I, I think that's important. And again, it's anything but waste. Dan, thank you. Thank you for writing this book. Um, I, I really mean it when I say that it was my favorite book of the year, that I think it is just absolutely compelling. And um, I'm going to encourage everyone wholeheartedly to read it. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time on a chaotic week in a on a cold morning in Wisconsin.
1: <laughs> I appreciate your interest. I enjoyed talking.
0: Yeah. Um, t- is there anywhere people should look for you? And just, no. Um, no, uh, just the book, which we'll link to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just the book. I've, I've got a website that I haven't even looked at in a long time. We'll link so, to the book. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for listening
0: to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find mind, body, and soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.